This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select mostly at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this sixth episode of The Quarter Bin, I'm looking at Hex Number 1, published by DC Comics, September 1985. Hex Number 1 at a cover price of 75 cents, meaning I acquired my copy for an acceptable two-thirds markdown. The story, Once Upon a Time in the West, was written by longtime Jonah Hex writer Michael Fleischer, with art by Mark Tashira. The cover was by Tashira and Klaus Janssen, and it promises us a gut-searing first issue. The issue itself starts with Hex awakening to find himself without allies in a miscellaneous 1870s saloon. Still dazed, his attempts to clear his head are interrupted by the entrance of El Papagayo. For too long now, you have been the fastest gunfighter north of the Rio Grande. Now, I'm going to end all that by spilling your guts out. But, of course, no man can outdraw Jonah Hex, who dives for cover and returns fire and blows a hole right through the El Papagayo robot. We cut to a super future control room with Hex's ugly mug on a huge screen. Evidently, Jonah is not in Kansas anymore, or in the 1870s anymore. Jonah's gun is empty, which makes no sense after firing just one round. It ain't no real six-gun, he thinks, running out of the saloon. It's just some kind of phony piece of junk. Except it did just blow away a robot, so in retrospect, it's a little confusing. Anyway, he finds several armed guards rushing towards him in a futuristic corridor of some kind. Holy Hannah, is this a nightmare? Jonah is stunned by the guards' ray guns and dragged into another room. Floating above him in a saucer-looking contraption is a man who introduces himself as Reinhold Borsten, who welcomes him to Seattle? And as to why I brought you here, that shall be made known to you in good time. For now, Mr. Hex, let it suffice to say that I have long been a devotee of the fighting man and a dedicated student of the art of war. Borsten, a bald, robed man, shows him holographic projections of famous warriors like Hannibal and Stonewall Jackson, and then displays more current history, expositioning to us the nuclear holocaust that decimated the Earth. A shock Jonah, flat, passes out. When he comes to, he finds himself in a large glass tube that is filling up with gas. I'm used to being in tight spots of one kind or another, but Lord knows ain't any of them been like this. That yellow smoke or whatever it is, starting to make my legs stiff on me. He is able to use his trusty pig sticker knife to bust his way out, and then Jonah finds himself in a long room with hundreds of military men and pieces of equipment encased in similar glass tubes. He does not recognize what a tank is. What's this machine that looks like a cross between the bank vault and the Merrimack? He smashes his way into a display case of pistols. He loads up on guns, but sets off an alarm in the process. What kind of sound is that? But he does know what to do. It's time to make myself scarce. A platoon of guards respond to the alarm, and Hex guns one down. Thank heaven for small favor. At least this six-gun is actually a six-gun. 
Jonah's path is blocked by a red lightning force field of some kind. He is smart enough to not cross it, and does manage to flip one of the guards right into it. Jonah tricks the remaining guards into firing at their fallen comrade, onto whom he had put his confederate hat. He then shimmies his way under the lightning gate. A radioactive waste truck leaves the compound. Having forgotten what they learned in the early 2000s about using mirror devices to look under trucks, uh, we see that Jonah is hanging onto the underside. The drivers get an alert that a bounty of 2,000 somes is being offered for Hex's return. They give us no idea of what that amount of money equates to, but it does motivate them enough to track down the fugitive. One of the truck guys sees Jonah dart off from under the truck and take off on foot. Unfortunately, Jonah does not understand these fancy horseless carriages. Blast it! It ain't no use! I can't figure how that thing moves, but it is tearing after me faster than any bloodhound. The drivers aim to run Hex down, but he spins and fires two bullets right through the windshield and into their foreheads, and the truck swerves and spins out. Taking off on foot, Jonah tries to assess the situation. Seattle does not make any sense. I ain't never been there, but I've heard of it. It's got nearly 2,000 people living out there, they say. But that city is a far cry from where he had been. While still trying to make sense of the geography, Hex stumbles upon a trio of bad guys threatening a woman. They are dressed in odd exoskeleton-type suits and have the blonde tied up. She manages to fight back the best she can as one of the men threatens her with his claw-hook hand. Jonah tosses him aside and pulls out his pistol. Seems everybody I've met today is all dolled up for a costume parade. Hex and the woman depart. And as they walk off, she motions to her motorcycle. That's my hog, but those gorillas sprained my arm. You better drive. Of course, Jonah has no idea what to do. She asks how he usually gets around. Horse? The girl, Stiletta, shows him how to get the cycle started and tells him that he'll need to get a radiation suit or the next acid storm will burn his flesh right off. Stiletta and Hex head back to her gang, the Reapers. Hex learns that the gang is planning to take over a water site because the last war made clean water a resource worth fighting for. Stiletta invites Jonah to dinner and introduces him to Falcon, the gang leader. He joins the feast, pulling a piece of meat from the 20-foot-long grasshopper that is being cooked over an open flame. I'm sorry, I must have misread that. I couldn't have written that in my notes. Hold on. Okay, page 16, right top panel. Oh yeah, it appears to be a 20-foot-long grasshopper. Anyway, she explains to the group that Hex saved her life, and then gives him a big old sloppy thank you kiss. What Jonah doesn't know is that Stiletta is Falcon's woman. Of course she is. The news of Jonah's escape has been revealed to Borston back at the base. He is not pleased. I want the situation to be safely rectified by the time that hardware from the Vietnam conflict comes in. Hex has decided to at least temporarily throw in his lot with the Reapers, but he understands that he does not really know who the good guys and bad guys are. So far, the Reaper gang seems to be the only friends I got, even if that Falcon hombre is making my skin crawl. The camp that has the clean water is preparing for the inevitable Reaper attack. Their leader comments, Thanks to that informer I had planted in their ranks two months ago, we not only got advanced word those rats are coming, but we also got it in plenty of time to put together enough firepower to blast those scum right back to whatever sinkholes they crawled out of. The Reapers arrive right on schedule, and a battle ensues. 
Jonah and Falcon take shelter in a nearby building after their vehicles are destroyed. Their building is set on fire by the enemies, but Hex and Falcon make their escape out a back window. Falcon is already planning his revenge. They take off in a hovermobile, Falcon driving and Jonah in the sidecar. Jonah comments that it's starting to rain, and Falcon laughs at him. Rain? That's an acid storm. But you're going to have plenty of time to enjoy it, because this is where I uncouple the sidecar. But Hex grabs Falcon as he falls out of the cycle, and their fight continues back on solid ground, where Falcon quickly gets the upper hand. Blast! He's quick as a cat of mountain, he hits hard. Jonah finally manages to fight back, and of course he beats the other man senseless, because no matter how short a time he has been in Seattle, he is already the baddest man in town. The acid burns Jonah's skin, and peels the acid-proof clothes off a of falcon. Not a bad fit either. This year, leather coats even got a hood. He jumps aboard the bike and remembers all of Stiletta's training. He drives off as Falcon comes to and starts screaming for Hex to save him. But as Jonah drives away, Falcon's skin is burned right off his bones. Jonah makes it to the top of the hill and the rain stops, but his relief is short-lived. For a huge helicopter gunship meets him on the other side of the hill and it just opens fire on him. And Jonah Hex's tenure in post-apocalyptic Seattle appears to be short-lived. He was a hero to some, a villain to others. And wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex. But he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two truefreaks.libson.com. Before I talk about the actual issue in question, I want to talk about that promo we just heard. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke only ran 11 episodes, released between July 2010 and January 2012, and are available as part of the Two True Freaks feed, and the show has its own feed that you can find in iTunes as well. That promo is one of the best-produced promos I've run across, and the show itself maintains that high quality. It took a lot of time to produce, I'm sure, which is probably why Scott Gardner had to set aside the podcast, but he did manage to put out nine very entertaining hours of content about one of his favorite characters, Jonah Hex. Check the show out. On to the issue proper. The prior comics volume, simply titled Jonah Hex, produced its last issue, number 92, just the month before this one, and was also written by Fleischer. Earlier in the year, Hex and some of his fellow DC Western characters, including Scalp Hunter, appeared in Crisis on Infinite Earths, issue 3, 
as part of a brief scene that showed that the crisis event was affecting characters and events all throughout time and space. This is a clear-cut example of the different worlds of pre-crisis and post-crisis DC. I don't know if this pulling Jonah out of time is a specific result of the crisis, but the company certainly took the opportunity of the crisis to massively change the status quo of Jonah Hex and to reintroduce him with a new premise. And boy, is it a wacky premise. And I say that as a huge fan of fantasy, sci-fi, and comic books. This is a wacky premise. I mean, the Green Lantern books look at Hex number one and scratch their heads in disbelief over it. I don't mind the man-pulled-out-of-time story. It's a common enough trope in sci-fi, and it's often done very well. Hex number one, in this context, is very similar to the John Carter story, as a matter of fact. I'm referring to the really good books by Edgar Rice Burroughs, not the bloated movie from a few years ago. Or to put into comic book lingo, this is the Adam Strange origin story, except he was pulled across space and not time, while Hex seemed to have been pulled across both. I make these comments as a big fan of the John Carter books, and I didn't even hate the movie. And I'm a really big fan of Adam Strange, but this is Jonah Hex, a character who's been a Western character for well over 100 issues of his own title and in other books. No, it's the sudden change for Hex, this genre whiplash, that I find kind of weird, to be honest. All of that being said, this was a fun issue to read. There's a nice balance struck here between the stranger in a strange land aspect of the story and the Jonah Hex is the baddest man in the Old West aspect of the story. If this was a more modern comic from the decompressed era, his confusion would have lasted two full issues, I'm sure. Heck, it would have taken him two full issues probably to escape the complex. I bet that in a modern comic, the reveal of Reinhold Borsten as the big bad would have happened at the end of issue one, not at the bottom of the fourth page of issue one. The bits about Jonah not being able to drive a motorcycle or not recognizing a tank or understanding the nature of the rain were presented really well. But since he is the hero, Jonah Hex pulls himself together enough to put his own confusion and lack of understanding on the back burner. I like that he outthinks his opponents, as well as outpunching them and outshooting them. And his hunches are as strong as ever, as he has a bad feeling about Falcon as soon as he meets him. Of course, that may have been the dirty look Falcon shot him after getting all spoochy-like with Stiletta. Actually, she took him by surprise, and the look on his face in that panel is priceless. But back to Stiletta. I know, Stiletta? That's her name? Really? All I can say is, it was the 80s. Of course, Michael Fleischer has a terrific handle on the character, and despite this massive change of setting, this is Jonah Hex as I understand him to be. He's willing to be loyal to the group that showed him kindness, but he's not blindly so. This is a nice bit of nuance, as Hex is still looking for answers as to who the black hats and the white hats are. It's hard to put myself in the mind of a mid-80s reader enough to know exactly how I feel about how the tech is presented in this modern world. If this book were written any time in the last ten years, everything would have a more steampunk sort of feel. And even though that aesthetic may be a bit overplayed, I actually like it a lot. So I did not immediately gravitate towards this version of the old-timey, futuristic mashup. But I, I do give the design team credit in that their version of the future is consistent. Nothing stood out as odd or as a bad fit in this version of the future, except for maybe the sidecar. That was in the story clearly 
is just the necessary story element to give Jonah and Falcon an opportunity for their fight. By the way, I only have the first and last issues of this run, numbers 1 and 18, and those are the only ones I've ever seen in the quarter bins. So as far as this podcast goes, I don't envision us getting back to this series anytime soon. I hope that the mysteries that were introduced here play out well over the life of the series. I assume that Hex picks a side, finds Stiletta again, and eventually goes face-to-face with Borston. There is a certainly a big picture to this story, a lot going on on a pretty grand scale. The premise, which, as I said, I find a bit wacky, is certainly ambitious. I hope that it delivered on what it promised here, and that this version of Jonah Hex had a good run, and that this man-out-of-time era had a satisfying conclusion. Because after the end of this series, ending with just 17 more issues, it would be almost two decades before Jonah Hex had his own title again. I like the character of Hex as much as I've read of him, or heard Scott Gardner podcast about him. But I prefer the current version of the character in New 52 All-Star Western to this one. As fun as the story was, the Mad Max setting just isn't where I want Jonah Hex to be. The verdict on Hex number one is a mixed one, but I think it's worth 25 cents. Sure, a solid quarter bin deal. There is a lot of action, a lot of adventure, and a writer who clearly has a handle on his character. I just had trouble with the premise, but the execution of the story and the mysteries laid down made this an enjoyable and intriguing first issue for the series. That wraps up my coverage of Hex number one bringing episode 6 of the Quarterbin Podcast to a close. In episode 7, we're revisiting a character we've already covered twice here. So put your underwear on outside of your pants, and join me as I cover Action Comics 702 for August 1994. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen. And I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor Allen!